Hello and welcome to the Classicist Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, here, of course, with Victor Davis Hansen, the Martin and Ely Anderson Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution. And Victor, this week we go back in time, following the logic of a, a recent column of yours, back in time 75 years to 1941 – and if, if you read the short paragraph with the bold print in your high school history textbook, you probably see the beginning of World War II placed in 1939 with the German invasion of Poland. But as you lay out in this piece, the war from 1939 to 1941 really is for the most part a, a European war. So why don't you start with the refresher course for those who may be a little rusty. Take us to 1941 and how the conflict changes that year. Yes. Well, I don't think anybody before June of 1941 necessarily called what we call World War II, World War II. I think it was a border war. Uh, there was still something called the Great War. It wasn't called World War One yet. And when Germany invaded Poland and divided up with the Soviet Union and then annexed or absorbed most of Western Europe, all except Britain, uh, the war was essentially over by April of 1941 when they had pacified the Balkans, taken Greece, invaded Crete, and they had won. Britain was alone. The Soviet Union was an active collaborator. The United States was still staunchly isolationist. Uh, Japan's co-prosperity sphere was very pro-Axis as a member of the Axis, pro-German, and it was over. And then three things happened in 1941, not only to reopen the war, um, there had been fighting in North Africa, etc., but it, the Axis were dominant. But not only open, reopen the war, but to redefine it as something global, and that became known immediately as World War II. So walk, walk us through those three events that really changed the course of things in '41. Well, the first was the, in, the invasion of the Soviet Union on June 21st. Nobody had envisioned that Hitler would do something as bold or stupid as to attack his erstwhile ally with four million uh, Axis troops, allies, etc. And then that opened a continental war that required 75% of the Wehrmacht's resources and would eventually kill about 80% of all German ground forces and really wreck uh, the Third Reich. The second was that Japan attacked the United States on December 7th and that, and then the next day Singapore and Britain and that was quite surprising because although there had been tensions and they were – they had alleged grievances, most of the Pacific was orphaned and by that I mean that the Netherlands and France to take two colonial powers didn't exist anymore. They were under German occupation. So the rich Southeast Asia colonies of France such as uh, Thailand or Cambodia or Vietnam or the Dutch East Indies, which produced could produce if properly exploited all of Japan's oil needs, were just open. So many people thought maybe Japan might annex both of them. They had, in fact, they had gone into Vichy, France in 1940 and, and were beginning to consolidate that. But then they did something quite stupid and attacked the United States and Britain perhaps because they thought we were isolationists, perhaps we had not helped Britain uh, the prior two, year, two years during the Blitz. Whatever the reason was, they did not think that we would offer a muscular response. And then the third and final act that ensured this European border war would become global was that for some strange reason, not just Hitler but Mussolini as well, 
declared war in the United States on December 11th. And I don't think that had they not done that, we would have done, we would have declared war on them. We probably concentrated on Japan. But then all of a sudden we were confronted with a two front war as well as Japan fighting in, as well as Japan had by fighting in, in China and us. And as German did, Germany had by fighting the Soviet Union while they were dealing with uh, Britain as well. So that made it a global war in 1941. The point that you really drive home in this piece is that the Axis powers overstepped. They, they undermine their own stability by trying to do too much. And I want to get to the why of that in a moment. But first, why don't you just play out the alternative scenario for us? What does it look like for the Axis powers if they don't take these extra steps? Well, if they had not done those three things in 1941, then you've got to really deal with reality. And that is they had marshaled a four million man army, not the two and a half that invaded France the prior spring of May 1940. But by this time, a year later, uh, with the Hungarians and the Romanians and the Finns and soon uh, even volunteers from Spain and the Italians sent 180,000 as well eventually, they had an enormous army. And where would it have gone had it not been directed at the Soviet Union? Most likely it would have gone down into uh, North Africa, joined the Italians who had a quarter million people there in Libya and another quarter million that had beaten the British in Somaliland and they would have probably driven to Alexandria, Suez and then gone into the Middle East and got the oil and divided it up with uh, Japan. Of course, Japan early in 1942 had been very active and successful in the Indian Ocean so there was a good chance that they could have, the Italian Navy could have dominated the Mediterranean, met the Japanese at Suez, and they would have been able to import all the oil they needed without, without ever touching the Soviet Union. And from what we know from Stalin's correspondence, he was perfectly happy to see that happen. And Victor, you, you say in this piece, I'm quoting you here, so why did the three Axis powers commit such blunders that would lose them the new global war in less than four years? Your answer, nations like people are irrational, close quote. I have the sense – tell me if you think otherwise – that that's a concept that has very little currency in sort of elite American foreign policy circles these days. We seem to have a lot of highly educated people who fancy themselves rationalists and are convinced that deep down in their hearts, most other foreign leaders are too. Is, is that your read of the situation? Yeah, I think most people mirror – they mirror image themselves. So in the case of 1941, a rationalist could have gone to Hitler as OKW, the, the Joint Chiefs of the German military did and say, wait a minute. If you attack the United States and you get in a war as we are with Soviet Union and Britain, the combined pre-war GDP is about quadruple ours and we have no means of ever getting – to the United States. We don't have a fleet and that can reach it successfully and we don't have a four-engine bomber that can – and neither do the Japanese. So this is madness. They did say that, some of them. Um, but irrationally, Hitler had said, well, you people always say that. You said I couldn't beat the, the, the magnificent French army and I did in six weeks. You said that I couldn't bomb Britain. I'm, I'm bombing it. You said this. You said this. And we're superior. We're the Volk. He came up with a lot of rationalist excuses to justify something that was 
unhinged. And I think that's what we don't understand. And we have to go back really for enlightenment to someone like the historian Thucydides, who says, you know, the Athenians fought for their empire and they wanted to keep their empire because of their fear and their perceived self-interest and their honor. And I think that applies to Hitler. He had this idea of the Third Reich was scared of all these enemies. He thought he could restore German nationalism and preeminence throughout Europe. And he saw that it would be in his perceived self-interest to do so. Psychiatrists would say he's crazy, but in the way he looked at the world, it, it made some sort of sense. When you think about the Thucydides analysis, when you bring in things like honor or fear that sort of fall outside of the, the cold sort of calculating calculus that you're going to get maybe from the the Washington set sometimes. When we're talking about motivations beyond the purely calculated or the hyper-rational, what are the factors that you think the modern American foreign policy establishment is most likely to miss or to misunderstand about our adversaries? Well, maybe we could exhibit that by – Looking at Vladimir Putin, our establishment would say, look, Putin's in dire straits. The oil prices that he depended on for export currency have crashed. He's widely hated throughout the world. He runs a kleptocracy that's inefficient. He's mired in the Middle East. The last thing that Vladimir Putin wants to do is unify Ukraine under his failed system or to have another quagmire by going into Estonia. Now, that's a rationalist way of view from our point of view. From their point of view, Vladimir Putin's, who puts a much higher premium on fear and honor, he would say, you know what? The Soviet Union had borders that were defensible. I don't. And we used to have the buffer zone in Eastern Europe. I don't. So I've got to reclaim the Soviet borders. And I can start with the Balkans. I can start with bullying Eastern Europe. I can get back to Ukraine. I can go as I did in the Crimea. And by doing that, I am secure. And more importantly, I feel I bring back to the Russian people a sense of honor, respect that Russia is not laughed at anymore, that the United States in condescending tones doesn't talk down to us like Obama does. Uh, the president of the United States will never again say to a Russian president, uh, he's into macho shtick or he's like somebody in the back of the classroom that cuts up. Or they won't get a stupid little red plastic button and push it and not even translate the word reset properly into my language. That's how they think. And they might also think, oh, the Westerners think we won't dare go into Estonia because a NATO country. But maybe we should go into Estonia precisely because it is a NATO country. And they will invoke Article 5 and nobody will do a thing because they're weak and decadent and we can unravel NATO. We would all find all that absurd. But I don't think that Putin does. Beyond f the factors that work there, things like honor and, and national pride, would religion be another example? It does seem, for instance, that when we talk about a country like Iran, that amongst Western elites there is sometimes a conceit that to the extent that Tehran may employ sort of religious language, that it's just sort of window dressing to pacify the populace. And, and really the people running the show there don't believe it. Yeah, I think – that's very important that we should not interpret or imagine what other leaders say, but we should just listen to what they actually have said. And in the case of Iran, we've had Ralph and Johnny have talked about Israel as a one-bomb state and other members of the theocracies who have said we could survive a nuclear attack. And what they meant by that is a population of 
however we define it, 50 or 60 million people would probably survive a retaliatory strike by Israel, whereas Israel wouldn't. Now we think, well, why would they be willing to lose 30 million people? And they would probably say back to us, 2,000 years from now, nobody's going to remember 30,000 people. They're only going to remember that the Shia of all people in Islam, not the Sunnis Sunnis. and And Persians, Persians, not Arabs, Arabs. reclaim the mantle of uh, Islamic supremacy and destroy the hated Zionist entity. And that way, according to their logic, it might make sense, especially if you thought the 30 million were going to be better off in paradise than they are in Iran of today. So let me ask you this in closing. World War II happens at a remove of about a quarter century from World War One. People who lived through those conflicts might be surprised to learn that in the 70 years since, there has not been a global conflagration on that scale. There's a sense though in recent years that the global order that we've had, such as it is, obviously there's still been plenty of conflicts going on throughout the world, but that that status quo is starting to erode. In your judgment, what are the chances that we see another war on a global scale like those two in in our lifetimes? Is that unthinkable or is the balance that we've had more tenuous than some of our listeners might suspect? Oh, I think it's always possible at any time given the nature of humans. But we've got to go back and prune away the lies and try to discover the truth that Establishment opinion is Versailles was a mean treaty and it made Germany angry so they went to war. The fact of the matter was Versailles was a weak treaty and humiliated the Germans without occupying their homeland when they were defeated. So they could lie and say that they were on the ascendance when they were stabbed in the back. My point is if you look what we did after 1945, we not just humiliated Germany and Japan and Italy, but we physically occupied their space, pointed a gun to their head, and then reconstituted democracy in a way that would have been an unthinkable in 1918 as cruel and unusual punishment. But that kept the peace because of deterrence. And we did the same thing with the Soviet Union. We had mutually assured destruction. We had a mechanism to stop the Red Army from getting to uh, the English Channel. And we confronted them wherever they tried to be provocative. So what I'm getting at is the elite says that rational people, wise men, uh, State Departments, the EU, the UN, all of these uh, bodies and organizations and sophisticated, sober, and judicious individuals keep the peace. They don't. What keeps the peace is classical deterrence, that if you try something stupid, you're going to lose far more than uh, you thought, and we're going to make that very clear in advance to you. So the bigger club is, is a much more effective way of keeping the peace than rhetoric. Now, which gets back to, to your question, and that is, do people in the world today, whether North Korea or China, or Iran, or Russia, sense that we're losing deterrence. And deterrence is not predicated on sheer military capability, but on the willingness to use it. And I think they feel that after Obama's red lines and step over lines with Ukraine and uh, deadlines in serial fashion to Iran and the apology tour and the mythographic Cairo speech, that he either doesn't believe in the post-war order or he feels that it's amoral or unethical, or he doesn't believe in the use of forces solving anything. And therefore, as his term winds down, I think we ha- we may see something, regional thug- thugs might, whether it's China building an island in the South China Sea or North Korea sending missiles over Japan or Iran 
carving up Syria and Iraq or Putin eyeing all of Ukraine this week, these people might feel that they're never going to have an opportunity like this the rest of their lives because U.S. is pretty much under Obama, lost all deterrent capability. Not that our military is necessarily that much weaker. It's weaker, but not that much. But the person who directs it and order it has either no confidence in it or no confidence on the idea that it could be used for to prevent a war. All right, Victor, thank you. And thank you. Join us, join us next week for the next installment of the Classicist Podcast. And in the meantime, you can stop by hoover.org to read all of Professor Hansen's commentary. We'll see you back here soon. For Victor Davis Hansen and the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Senek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.